Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. To date, assisted suicide is legal in 10 U.S. states plus the District of Columbia, and advocates are continuing efforts to legalize it across the country. As the debate continues, a question that rarely gets asked is, how is the legalization of assisted suicide affecting the practice of medicine? Today, I'm joined by Nicole Shirilla, a palliative care physician at the Wexner Medical Center at The Ohio State University. Nicole will discuss how assisted suicide has affected how she practices medicine, as well as how it affects the medical profession as a whole. I should note that Nicole is a physician fellow of the NCBC. Dr. Nicole Sharilla, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thank you, Joe. Good to be with you. Great to be with you. And we've known each other for a few years, and I've been wanting to get you on the program for a while. So, so welcome, and thank you for thank you for doing this interview today. Thank you for the invitation. All right. So, as our regular listeners know, uh, when we have a a new guest on the podcast, I, I ask them to. Please tell us a bit about your background, specifically your education and work experience leading up to your current position. Thank you. Yes. As you mentioned, I'm a palliative care physician at Ohio State University, and I also serve as a member of the Center for Bioethics um, in my current role and as a clinical bioethicist and also educator. My medical background began, I was a non-traditional student entering into medical school after I had completed my undergrad and worked for a number of years, actually, in other areas, including I was a high school theology teacher and also worked at the University of Notre Dame for a bit in a ministry role. And you know, I, have to, I have to interrupt you. That. It's amazing how many people have been high school theology teachers. I, I used to be one and, and multiple yeah. guests. It, it's really funny how many people have a background teaching high school theology. Uh, I, I just had to say that. Yeah, of course. That's so interesting. Yeah, and, and, and I, I'm grateful for all of those experiences. They've all been extremely uh, formative and part of my journey for sure. And I did feel a calling uh, to go back to school to uh, pursue. Uh, I had to take the undergrad classes that would allow me to apply to medical school. So I began that journey in um, probably around 2005 or so and uh, started medical school in 2007 at the University of Pittsburgh. And graduated in 2011, so 10 years ago. And I did a residency in family medicine at the University of California, Irvine, and stayed on board there to do a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine. And that was always my hope in going to medical school was to work in that field of uh, taking care of people at the end of life or with serious illness. And so I completed my fellowship and worked for one year following fellowship in California, which I know we'll speak more about. We're going to talk more about that. Yes. Yes. And um, that will be much of our focus of our conversation today. Um, And after that one year, I uh, transitioned back to Ohio where I grew up and I um, worked for a year in a inpatient hospice facility, taking care of people with um, inpatient level hospice needs at a beautiful facility where we had 36 private rooms uh, and, and able to care for people and their families, usually in their last uh, days or weeks of their life. 
And then I, I made a move to Ohio State where I had learned that they had a strong program in clinical bioethics. So I did a fellowship under my mentor, Dr. Ryan Nash, and a master's degree in bioethics at Ohio State University, which I completed last year. And so my current role really is a, a blend of, of multiple things I'm passionate about. My clinical medicine, which is a palliative physician at a cancer center here. And I work in clinical bioethics consultation, where I um, am on call for ethical questions that come in throughout our medical system. And I teach. I do about 40% of my time in medical education and also graduate bioethics education. So come full circle in a lot of ways with that initial teaching um, experience out of college and really grateful for, for all these opportunities. Yeah, so you kind of have a, if, if I'm hearing you correctly in your, in your position right now, it's sort of a three-pronged or, or a three-legged stool, so to speak, in terms of what you're doing. So about how much, now you said about 40% of your time is teaching. Mm-hmm. How much, what percentage of your time is, is seeing patients? The rest of my time is split 30% clinical and 30% ethics uh, consults. Really? Yeah, 30% of your time is covered by ethics consults. Wow. How many, yeah. how many give, give or take, how many consults do you get? Well, this was a busy week, for example. I had, <laughs> I had call Tuesday and Wednesday, and, and I think I had six or seven consults in two days. And those can be, uh, depending on the, uh, the acuity of the consults, they can, they can be time-consuming as well. They certainly can. And it does ebb and flow. It's hard to predict, which is the nature of the service. But we are a large system, our inpatient I think we have 1,200 beds, and we also are available to anyone in the outpatient system as well. And I did actually get an outpatient consult this week. So wow. um, it's, it's, it's not really always the uh, same from week to week, but I'd say generally speaking, somewhere between one to three per day is about the average. Wow. Yeah. Someday we should maybe do a podcast uh, comparing and contrasting your consults with our consults because it's it's kind of the same thing. It's it's sometimes it's feast or famine, and, and it's amazing the stuff that comes in. So absolutely, yeah. So what is a? I, you kind of talked about this already, but maybe speak a little bit more about this. What does a what does a typical day look like for Nicole Shirella? Yeah, so it really depends on the day of the week. My um, about a year and a half ago, I clinically transitioned from doing inpatient palliative medicine to taking a a role in the outpatient clinic. And that allowed me to have a set um, clinic schedule where I am in clinic on a um, predictable basis. I currently see patients um, all day on Mondays. And I then have some dedicated time um, during the week for responding to patient calls and questions that come in, working with our nursing staff who's continually triaging uh, concerns that are coming in from our patients, um, and also working with the nurse practitioner who I'm um, paired up with in a dyad who is wonderful. She, I'm available to her really throughout the week to collaborate and consult with as she uh, does an awesome job um, doing a lot of the follow-ups. So I spend my my full days Monday in clinic, and those are very um, very dedicated clinic days. I don't otherwise do much all days. That really does demand my full time and attention and energy. I have, generally speaking, the ethics consults on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Generally, with with some flexibility depending on my colleagues' schedules, and then I have my teaching days generally. Thursdays and Fridays. Um, 
I will start up in the near future in-person teaching with our first-year medical students who are currently about to go through their orientation. And so in a few weeks, I'll be starting up with my first-year cohort that I'll have for two years. And I'm also involved with a fourth-year medical student class that involves some advanced communication skills, delivering bad news, um, some kind of higher-level medical student uh, communication and um, professionalism skills and competencies that we want our students to learn. And then I teach in the Graduate School of Bioethics. I'm working uh, with my, my, my boss and mentor, uh, co-teaching with him, end-of-life ethics, which is wrapping up right now. We've been teaching a summer course together. And in the fall, we're going to teach clinical ethics together. And that's not in the medical school per se. It's a graduate program. Some people are also in medicine who are pursuing that degree, but people come from a variety of backgrounds, including social work, chaplaincy, law, et cetera. So it's a very diverse group of learners um, and a very rewarding, interesting teaching experience. Yeah, I can tell you're, you're a very lazy person, aren't you, after, after saying that? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Your life is not boring, I'm sure. No. And, you know, really, to be honest, it's interesting. You know, every day truly is unique, especially with being on a consulting ethics service. Um, the diversity of the questions that we get, the particularities of the situations um, really are such a dynamic experience. And although we know, um, you know, foundational principles and concepts within ethics, the application of that and really working through the real world questions that come up and the contextual features that really um, are very important in thinking through the situations that we get called about is, is just really interesting. No two days are alike. And um, I appreciate that very much about the work. Although at the same time, it can be what makes it even more challenging than you know maybe doing something that would be more predictable, but I, I really am grateful for it and love doing it, and um, it's been a very good fit. Yeah. And I can attest, uh, and probably every ethicist at the NCBC could attest to what you, to everything you just said. It's absolutely true. But anyway, let's let, let's let's move on to our the, the topic of our discussion today, which is really uh, assisted suicide and its effect on the medical profession. So Nicole, you said you went to. to uh, to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, correct? Yes, I did. So I was wondering if you could tell us how was assisted suicide, and maybe even euthanasia as well too, how was it portrayed um, for you in medical school? And then even today in the profession, is assisted suicide encouraged? Is it discouraged? What's what's the, the state of the union, so to speak, right now? You know, to be very honest, Joe, I don't really recall it being discussed in medical school. I, I'd have to go back and look and see when it was first legalized um, in our country. My preclinical medical school years were 2007 and 2008, and I actually do not recall much emphasis or discussion on assisted suicide. In fact, when I was choosing palliative medicine or feeling called to that, I really wasn't thinking about that being a major issue that I would potentially face in that work, to be honest. Um, there were certainly other ethical issues and um, that I was very uh, keenly aware of uh, being exposed to and challenged by in medical school. Generally things that would be more focused on the beginning of life, 
But in terms of end of life, I, I really don't recall assisted suicide being discussed. Um, and I would have to go back and look when it first legalized in our country. And perhaps I was prior to that trend beginning. Yeah. So it was, you know, the process, it took a while because there was all sorts of votes and court cases in Oregon during the nineties. And, you know, and so 2007, I know Oregon had legalized it by then, but the, I, I don't think the dominoes had started falling. I'd have to go back and see when um, Washington and, and, and others um, kind of fell in line with it. But I think you're right. When, when you were, at least when you were beginning medical school, it, you know, it, it wasn't a, it, it certainly wasn't as big as it is today. So, right. So, so let's go, we, we, we mentioned in the, uh, as you were giving us your, your background a little bit earlier, um, your experience in California. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners the story of how the legalization of assisted suicide in California directly impacted uh, your, your work as a palliative care physician. Absolutely. So when I, was, uh, when I moved to California in 2012, I moved out there for residency. I had a really wonderful experience um, in my residency program and knew all along what I was looking to do was hospice and palliative. That was always my goal. And for those listeners who maybe aren't aware or haven't really been exposed to um, that particular field, it's a field of medicine that focuses on caring for people who are either terminally ill at the end of their life or facing uh, a very serious illness diagnosis. And hospice and palliative have some distinctions between them, but generally speaking, the training programs are a unified fellowship training program. And so you can train and you train in both. And it's a one-year program, which is actually quite quick in terms of medical training. Um, and so I had such a wonderful community established in um, Southern California through my residency. And so I was very interested in uh, an opportunity to stay at the University of California, Irvine for that fellowship. And providentially, they were just beginning their training program. I was their first uh, formalized fellow. They had had some people who had trained before me, but not through a formalized fellowship. So I was the first uh, official fellow of UC Irvine. And the year I was training was um, uh, 2015. And I actually started on the calendar year instead of the academic year. So I was finishing up around December of 2015. And because it's a one-year fellowship, you begin interviewing for jobs really quickly. You're only about four to five months uh, into your fellowship when you're, you know, looking for positions. And, and it feels interesting that, you know, you're considering considering to be hired for a attending or faculty level position when you feel like you just got going with training. But that was the reality. And so I, um, I interviewed widely and I was um, considering a lot of different opportunities at that time, but I, I really felt uh, excited about remaining in California. And um, so I accepted a position at a system in San Diego County and um I, I signed the contract and accepted the position. I'd say it was probably about seven months into my fellowship program. And so shortly after signing my contract and um, making that commitment, um, 
physician-assisted suicide became legalized in the state of California. The initial vote, at first it went to a popular vote, which I believe was um, in the fall, which was uh, not passed. And so there was sort of a sigh of relief. And I thought, oh, this is good. And, um, but then it went to a special session and I don't know all the legal technicalities, but as I recall, it went to a special session and was passed by the governor. And with about a six month period of time, I believe before it would actually become enacted. And the enacting date was going to be June, mid June of 2016. And so I was in this kind of a interesting I was, you know, I had interviewed, I had done my interviews throughout my fellowship year with the physician assisted suicide not being legalized in the state of California. And I had signed my contract when it was not legalized in the state of California. And yet I began my job in March and three months later, it was, you know, all of a sudden legal. legalized. So I was in a very particular piece of time and history of really in that moment of the transition in in that state. And so I think a lot of the challenges, particular to me, are have to kind of understand it in that context of making a big decision about a position about a position on one set of, you know, circumstances and then that changing. Um, so how it affected me, you know, I was fresh out of fellowship, um, you know, which is a big transition in and of itself, transitioning into your first independent practitioner role, which is outside of your training. And, you know, you're no longer under direct supervision of a supervisor. You're really, you know, responsible for making decisions and, um, taking care of patients and, which is stressful in itself. Which is stressful in its own right, to, to, especially after, again, as I mentioned, this relatively quick training program. And so I was already um, in a pretty significant period of transition professionally. And now I am also facing a tectonic shift in medicine overnight, feeling like it was overnight, that something that was not just um by no means was settled in terms of the moral question in our country but at least legally was settled was was not legal was now all of a sudden a legal option and what i witnessed and what i experienced was how that change affected me my colleagues the field of palliative the larger hospital system kind of watching how this legal change was affecting the system as a whole and and people's whole kind of thought process of um, if and how a system had to respond or implement or respond to that legal change and legal status change. But in my perspective, without ever really, maybe it happened before I had been hired or, or something like that, but I never really felt that we were really engaging upon the question of the moral question at hand. It was more of a, what do we do now legally in terms of access or protocol that would both give people 
from the system's perspective, access to this option that they were legally entitled to, while at the same time respecting the way the law was written that would protect the conscience of those who did not want to be a part of it, at least at the physician level that was written into the law. And what role does palliative medicine have in that? And, and, and people had very divergent perspectives on all of those questions. And um, I quickly found myself involved in meetings and conversations and, and, and ethical dilemmas and, and challenges that, honestly, I, I, I did not foresee in my decision and that responding to that calling of going into the field of end of life care and palliative medicine. And we can probably flesh that out quite a bit, but that would be how I would answer it initially. Um, It was overwhelming. You might hear as I'm kind of describing these things, um, there was a lot to process and to try to navigate and including the question of, is this where I belonged professionally? Um, in this particular, not just the state, but in the particular, you know, group and practice that I was in. Because in my experience, we had a large group, including hospice, palliative, we were, we are quite a large group of us. And, you know, within the first month, I'd say maybe within the first couple of weeks, um, I know for certain one of my colleagues was um, assisting suicide to one of the hospice patients. And I was, you know, finding out about it in a faculty meeting of sorts and, you know, and, 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 and confronting, confronting these challenges of, um, I'd, I think the best way I can say it is the takeaway I took personally was that law is different than culture. And while legally there might be parameters set up that say that, you know, no one individual physician is required to participate, we really do practice medicine, especially at the end of life as a team. And it's, you know, hospices are teams, palliative cares are interdisciplinary teams, and they're not only physician teams. And so I I began to really reflect upon and think about all the various people on these teams and how did each person feel? And was there a space to really know that? Or for example, you know, if a physician wanted to not be involved, that was maybe one thing, but what about a chaplain or a social worker or a nurse at the bedside or a cross-covering physician on call? who maybe doesn't agree with the drug that was provided for assisting suicide, but now is on call when it's, you know, ingested, but there's problems or, you know, all the permutations of this start to branch out and things that I wouldn't have necessarily known or thought about had I not been there on the ground. And even the reasons why people maybe were bringing up these options in the clinic and realizing how much, was behind a person even bringing this up or asking about it. And as you really accompanied a person and and responded and delved into the roots of their distress and suffering, how much it really brought up about fears of being a burden or fears of um, losing control. And I just began to realize if a physician was... um, taking the request on a more face value and not delving, they might miss a lot of those things that people were actually struggling with and, 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 and really bearing. And my takeaway, another big takeaway for me is that the option itself caused, cast a higher, cast a burden itself onto people because 
the option, a legal option, not not saying I would participate in it, but just that there was a legal option out there. I think in some cases, people who were maybe already vulnerable or worried about some of these issues, I think felt a burden to consider the option. And so I think it actually, in some cases, I can say in some of my experiences with working with people, cast a, heart, cast a bigger burden onto people who now had to contend with, should this be something they do because it's out there? Right. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I want this boy. I got. I got a lot of questions I got to ask you. We could go on all day with this. I, I'm wondering when assisted suicide was passed. So the day after it was passed, or in the weeks that after it was passed, were you and your colleagues in palliative care and in hospice? Were you on, for lack of a better term, the front lines, in the sense that? From the system's perspective, if they're saying, okay, assisted suicide is legal, who are going to be the ones to write the protocols, ones to administer assisted suicide? And it would seem to me that the palliative care and hospice teams would be sort of the natural first line of people who would do that or, or would be expected to do that. Well, was that the case or or what was yeah, your experience like that? That's an interesting question. You know, some people did feel strongly that it would be an automatic palliative medicine consult if a person asked. And I don't disagree with that to an extent that that, that, that request indicates a suffering, is something that is um, a cry for help, I think. And where I agree that we would be a consult to be able to provide consultation would be to help explore that, that suffering, not to take a person down the pathway or even be a part of that process. I would strongly, strongly hold that assisted suicide is not constitutive of palliative medicine. And there may be people who disagree with me on that, but I, I hold that very firmly. But I do see the, the wisdom in the, that reaction of they should see a palliative medicine team now because they're asking about this. And I do agree that to be able to sit with a person, hear their concerns, and, and to have the opportunity to offer them another path, resources that could be offered, um, whether there be relief of physical symptoms or um, elements of the care that might be able to address the stress that they may be feeling, whether it's psychologically or interpersonally or emotionally. So that part, I, I, do, I do understand that the folks that might say they should definitely see palliative care. And I would say yes, for that piece of really helping to explore and offer what we, you know, whatever we can offer humanly to say, here's what we can do and here's how we can accompany you. But I would strongly hold my, my position that, that it's not to be part of the process or to begin a referral for um, ultimately a patient being able to take their own life. Um, and now my experience, you know, I, I, can't re I can't say that anyone felt that palliative medicine should definitely be part of the process itself, the protocol, the legal protocol. But there were certainly people who felt that um, there was an expertise in palliative medicine about prognostication, um, about, you know, being able to complete some of those components of the requirements of the law that, you know, palliative medicine would, would be able to do. But that, I think there has to be held a sharp distinction of the role of a palliative medicine physician and consultant and team um, 
for a person who is who's bringing up or wondering or asking about assisted suicide. So it's nuanced, my answer. I I want to be in that space as hard as it is. I want to be available to meet with people and to provide my assessment and recommendations that that I hear that might be helpful to them as I kind of hear their concerns and where they're at. But it would be with the ability to offer something, knowing that it might not be what they want to accept. But yeah, to be part of the process itself, um, I would hold that strongly that that's not constitutive of our field. And, you know, really, the tenet really is, is to not not hasten or unduly prolong life, but to support a person through their natural process. And I imagine there are palliative care physicians who feel otherwise. I'm, you know, I'm quite sure of it that there are, but there are many of us who, who hold the position that I hold as well, I would think. Yeah. Um, did, did you ever feel pressured, either explicitly or, or implicitly, to participate in assisted suicide while you were in California? No, I, I didn't feel pressured to participate in it. But where I felt the challenge and the the what was overwhelming to me and what became challenging was understanding how I still practice within a group when others are participating. And how do you distinguish yourself from a group practice um, where questions about how you teach fellows, what you know, what what are you part of? What culture are you joining? How are you aligning yourself as a member of a group? And so while I can distinguish myself from another, I also appreciated the challenges of, you know, in very real ways, you know, some of the folks I worked with in the larger team, for example, social work or otherwise, felt very differently than me and and were wanting to, you know, advocate for the option for patients. And we were expected to work together in a clinic setting. And that's very challenging. Yeah. That's very challenging. Um, you know, how do you actually do that? Can you actually do that? Are you just agreeing to disagree or not? Is it too important of a question to be willing to, um, align yourself professionally with people who, you know, are going to be likely following up with folks to provide them avenues and resources for how to reach out and, you know, access these, 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 you know, this, end of life option as they call it. So I wouldn't have known these intricacies from the inside had I not been there. (laughs) It it sounds, I think the law, you know, I'm teaching right now, I'm teaching end of life ethics. And when my students were working on their modules on assisted suicide, and again, some of them aren't coming from a clinical background. You know, I, I really was trying to discern how to respond to them in a way that was helpful and inviting them to think more deeply about the issue because I can see how to a lot of people, maybe especially looking at this from an outside perspective, it may sound like something that is fairly straightforward. Person decides they've suffered enough. Person would like to, you know, bring the end about. Physician agrees and that happens and that's the end of the story. But I I can just tell you from my experience, it's not like that. Yeah. Not like that. I've yeah. had, I've, I've been in presence of spouses, you know, breaking down in tears, not wanting their spouse to pursue this and, and begging them that they're not a burden. You know, I've, I, I, I was in the presence of a man really weighing his life against an insurance policy that he had expiring. 
you know, so I can tell you these anecdotes and they're just small anecdotes. And, you know, it's not like I can say every person has these experiences, but I did. And just in that brief year, I, I experienced enough to understand it's very complex. And I, and I, since I've left California, I, I continue now to wonder about that a lot. You know, it's not legalized here, and I might be jumping ahead in kind of where you want the conversation to go, but um, it's not legal in my the state I live in currently, and I, I'm grateful for that. And I also feel in some ways I'm removed and um, protected, but um, but I, I do often wonder about what's going on in California, for example. What's really happening? What are people experiencing? What challenges are they facing? How are the nurses doing? What about the chaplains? What about the families? You know, I, I really think a lot about it, um, although I don't have real firsthand knowledge at this point. Of what's going on, yeah. So obviously this, you know, your experience in California with this, and as you just explained to us, um, has really affected you as a person in a, in a pretty profound way. Have you, or, or how have your experiences affected how you practice medicine? Well, where I practice currently, as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, in the current moment, it's not a question on the table. That being Mm -hmm. said, that being said, I sometimes in a way to kind of lighten the, to lighten the atmosphere around this, refer to myself as Marty McFly, you know, (laughs) back to the future, you know, like guys, you know, we have to keep our eyes open. You know, this is a reality. And so that's, that's a humorous little anecdote, but it's kind of a way I kind of sometimes just kind of cope with it a little bit. So, you know, so where I, how it affects me now largely is, is in my work of formation of educating those who are right now they're training in in Columbus, Ohio, but they're going to be scattering throughout the country, sometimes in a matter of months or weeks from when I interact with them, if they're in their fourth year. And they're going to be going to any number of places and likely, you know, by the numbers you've said and what we know by population, especially if they head out West, for example, they're going to be in states where this is a legal option. And so my, it really affects me currently as someone who is very, very much passionate about and dedicated towards the process of education and formation of those who are coming up in, in, in medical training to be physicians. Do you find that they are, um, do you find that when you bring this topic up, is this something that they've thought about before? Is it something new to them? And, and kind of what's their, what's their perspective on this as, as medical students? Interesting question. So in that fourth year class that I teach, one of the activities that we do in the course I'm involved in is a patient-based, a standardized patient encounter where a patient is given a very serious diagnosis and at the end of the encounter asks about um, assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. And I'll have to, I, I have to say that on the whole, it's been really, um, I've been very um, positively surprised by the answers of the students and their ability to articulate in those moments. And they're surprised by this question. They don't know it's coming. (laughs) And I've been surprised by their, 
positively surprised by their ability to 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 respond and I'd say on the whole, my sense, I'd have to go back and look at specific numbers or answers and things like that. But on the whole, I find that at least in the students I've been working with, it's largely something that they do not want to do and feel that it would be a violation of their ethical beliefs and the code of medicine, the code of ethics of medicine. There are some who default to the legal say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not legal. Well, you know. That's that probably change. not going to be the answer that you can really <laughs> build yourself upon, but um, for the for, for long. But um, but for the most part, I found that they they seem to have a sense that this is in violation of of the profession that they are seeking to enter. Um, now it's good to hear, you know. And and I don't know, you know, if that, you know, I'm not sure all the reasons why, and I can't give you like specific numbers and things like that. But that's just been my overall sense. I will say in the end of life ethics class that I've been teaching this summer, there were a number of students, we have about 25 students or so, and there were a number of them who felt very strongly that it was ethically justified based upon their their understanding of patient autonomy. And now again, I want to qualify, these aren't necessarily people in medicine who would actually ever be having the opportunity to take a patient through this process. Very few of them are actually physicians, but many of them view it as uh, something that's in accord with autonomy. And I will say, I have struggled with how best to respond and interact and and and, and engage those students in a way that's um, hopefully inviting them to consider a different perspective, to think more deeply. And I find myself saying often, you know, although I disagree with you, you know, I appreciate that you're trying to think through this from a perspective of ethics, I wonder, are there situations when something is more foundational than autonomy? Is autonomy always the first principle? You know, and so I, I can you think of it in an instance when, or, you know, so I, it, it's been a lot of work this summer working on how to teach this class right. in a pluralistic state setting where, you know, I, find myself in disagreement with a number of my students fairly regularly. So, so that's, that's where I'm at right now. And my real, Oh, I also teach the fellows for palliative medicine with my boss. We do a, a six part series throughout their fellowship year where we, we, um, we, we actually provide them their ethics curriculum, which has really, really been a really um, positive experience. And, it's a small group. We have four fellows at Ohio State and two at a local, another institution locally, and then one from the pediatric hospital. So there's about seven. And so it really is conducive for a lot of discussion. They're, they know each other very well. They're a very cohesive group. There's a lot of trust interpersonally. And I do find them very willing to engage in and, and discuss um, these issues. And you know, they are not practicing in a state where it's legal. And so I think that when I have shared a bit of my experience, I, I think they've been grateful to hear about it. I, I can sense also sometimes it looks like it's been a little overwhelming maybe for them to kind of think about that. Um, and a lot of them say, I'm really glad I don't have to really face that at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I say, I'm glad too. Yeah. All right, good. So we've, we've spoken quite a bit about how assisted, how assisted suicide has affected you personally. And I'd like to, to shift to maybe some more general uh, questions about this. First off, Nicole, how would you say um, the practice of medicine as a whole has been affected by the legalization of assisted suicide. 
Well, I think that as a whole, there are, um, as some of my students try to verbalize or articulate, I think there is, um, and it's hard to say what comes first, the cultural shift or the practice of medicine, but I think they're closely related. I think there is a movement towards um, seeing autonomy as unlimited and as sort of a um, most important foundational ethic that ought be respected at all costs. And it really has a lot of tentacles to it and a lot of reach in medicine where, you know, people might say, you know, um, it, it shifts medicine. It can shift medicine to feeling like you are a provider of services, like you are a, a physician is as a technician who essentially is providing kind of what the patient is asking for. Right. Um, kind of a vending machine in a sense. Vending machine. Yeah, that would be, that would be a way to put it. So that is the, that's the, I think the, the, the challenge here, I think in the invitation and in all of this is to really think about what is, what is the profession of medicine? What is the role of the physician? What is the end of medicine? And, 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 and how does the, the ethical um, discernment and foundation of the physician um, relate to that patient physician relationship? And yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And so, you know, so where I, where I, what would cause me to like lose sleep would be the, that there's this sort of, um, unreflected notion and shift that we provide what the autonomous patient wants. And that's, there's so many reasons why I, I could talk on that topic alone. And I really tried to in my teaching. Um, Evangelium Vitae, I think, was for me the linchpin of it all when I finally was able to see in writing what was in my heart, which is, you know, Autonomy, that which negates the dignity of the human person is not an autonomous choice. And there is a false notion of autonomy that, that we are, um, that it is limited, uh, that it is unlimited. And so how to, how to bring this into the practice of medicine and, and into the culture and into the formation of the students, and especially in ways when I'm maybe not working in a you know, Catholic, exclusively Catholic institution is really the the challenge, the invitation, the the work that I'm currently involved in, and so um, that that really is, you know, really where I spend a lot of my time and reflection and thinking, and and hopefully teaching. So yeah, yeah. Oh boy, there's there's a whole podcast in that uh, as well too, and. And I, I'm just thinking as you were as you were speaking now, I mean, it's going back to Aristotle and certainly going back to the Christian tradition. I mean, autonomy is you know, the reason we have autonomy is for our self-fulfillment, you know, as for who we are as human beings. And the question I always ask is, and I, because I've heard that it, I'm getting this from someone else, I didn't come up with this myself, but it, it really kind of, you know, when someone uses their autonomy to, or they use the argument of autonomy to destroy themselves, it seems to be they're, they're using autonomy for that which it was not intended in the first place. Because certainly ending your life or directly ending your life, I, I don't think it's human fulfillment. But again, that's a whole nother discussion that we could 
Yeah, you're right, Joe. And there's so much that can be said and should be said about it. And it should be a, hopefully a conversation that we're having um, in medicine and in and, and, and culture, um, because it's, it's a very, it's very important, very timely. It's really at the heart of, of these questions and these practices that are gaining momentum, at least, at least at, in one level of the culture. Yeah. I'm going to ask you what may be an unfair question because you're, you know, you, you've had the experience of California um, and now you've had the experience of Ohio, two very different states, at least in terms of assisted suicide anywhere. But from your perspective, uh, particularly when it comes to end of life care, is, do you think medicine is practiced differently in states where assisted suicide is legal versus states where it's not? You know, that's a great question. And I, I was only in California for about nine months, maybe 12 months after the practice went into effect because I made the decision to leave um, that job. Um, it was definitely different then. I mean, it was like, it was so time consuming in terms of the fact that there was this legal shift and there were all these meetings about protocols and policies and and it was like, in some sense, it was like all we were talking about sometimes. I was like, there's so much more that we are supposed to be doing, you know? Yeah. What about the work that we are supposed to be doing of, you know, taking care of people and accompanying them? And, and you know, and in fact, when so when I left, I um, I wanted to really enhance my, my, my knowledge and my clinical skills of actually providing very high level symptom management for people who were experiencing, you know, severe symptoms at the end of life. And that's why I worked in this inpatient called general inpatient hospice level care for a year, because that was where we were really doing things that were, you know, IV pump medicines and, and continuous nursing care and these kind of things. Cause you know, I wanted to be able to say confidently, like, yes, I can, I can respond to these very, you know, if, if very severe symptoms arise, I, I want to know I can, I can work in that, in that space. Um, so, so to go back to your question, I might be the wrong one to really comment because it was so dramatic going through that overnight, you know, now it's illegal, now it's legal. Um, and it was so dramatic and it was, and it was so, um, it, at least in my life, it was consuming in terms of, should I stay in this job? Should I look for something different? You know, how do I um, respond in this meeting? How do I prepare myself for this patient coming in that seems like they're going to be asking about this? So it was very, it was quite dramatic then. You know, I, I sort of wonder how it is now, um, maybe as Things have settled, maybe to some degree. I'm not sure. I, I sort of wonder what it's like at this point. Um, if people maybe have kind of found a rhythm and a space to work and a way to work that's maybe not so intense with the pressingness of the newness of the shift. Yeah. Um, but you know, certainly in Ohio, I mean, it's it, you know, it's not a question in terms of it's not something that you know, is being brought up. It's not really being discussed. If it's being discussed, it's being discussed academically, kind of in a theoretical, um, which is quite different, I think, in some ways from when you're actually sitting in front of a person who is asking you to help them in their life. Right. Yeah. 
So I'd like to uh, shift gears a little bit and ask you to put your, your palliative care physician hat on. So, so this is a fair question. So I, two questions that I've always had, and, and, I, and I was really looking forward to asking you them. So here's the first one. Advocates of assisted suicide claim that the practice is needed to prevent people from, quote, dying in unbearable claim. No, excuse, dying in unbearable pain, excuse mm-hmm. me. As a palliative care physician, evaluate that claim. So it is true that people can experience intense symptoms at the end of life, especially with, you know, if they have, you know, certain diseases that can be known to cause incredible amounts of physical pain. That is true that those symptoms can be present. And I would never minimize that or seek to say people never have bad pain or severe pain as they're dying. What I can say is that we we have the knowledge and the ability to to address and to treat those symptoms. Now, will it make a person completely symptom-free and pain-free? I can't say yes, because there is a reality of pain and suffering in the human condition that I can't necessarily take away all pain of a patient and, and bring them to a state of being you know, absolutely pain-free. But can I treat and lessen that pain and work with the patient and help them to, to have more comfort and the ability to have um, lessened pain and improved function and ability to focus on other things than the pain itself? Yes. Yes. And, 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 and what's interesting What's interesting about assisted suicide, and, and I, I'd have to kind of go back and look at some of the studies and percentages and things like that, but there's a notion or there's a sense around it that many of the requests that come in are actually not from what's currently happening in terms of physical pain or some physical symptom that's uncontrolled. It's, it's really largely often an existential issue of fear of loss of control or fear of being a burden or fear of what is to come. And so that is actually something I think needs to be um, said and understood. Have I taken care of people who've had severe pain? Yes, yes, I have. I absolutely have. Do we have medicines and ways that we can respond to patients who may be in those types of situations? We do. And sometimes more proportional me- measures are needed to um, to treat pain, and sometimes we we do have to, you know, think about. In very rare cases, we do even think about: do we do something where we, you know, use a little bit of sedation even to try to decrease the awareness of of the physical pain? That is something that is considered sort of a palliative measure of last resort that we can think about doing at times, but it's not in my experience, honestly, something that we frequently or commonly um, have to have to utilize or think about. So being human, having a a physical body and and one that is um, subjected to finitude and, and, and death is, you know, there is a reality there that, that there is suffering in our human condition. And I am not one to minimize that or, or, or make light of that. But my life's work as a physician is dedicated, along with so many of my colleagues, 
to helping to alleviate as we can those burdens and those pains. And I think of Padre Pio, who had the home for the relief of suffering in Italy, and he he did not want people to have to suffer. He knew it would likely happen. There would be realities of suffering, but he wanted medicine and the technologies and science of medicine to wed uh, the gifts of faith and compassion uh, to care for Jesus in disguise of, of the person who is ill and, and suffering in front of them. And so that's... Um, that's really the the work that's uh, in front of us as palliative physicians is to walk alongside of people in those journeys. We know it's not our journey. I, I wouldn't ever say that I fully understand even what my patient is going through. It's their story. It's their journey. But I can walk with them and alongside of them as someone who can hopefully help to uh, alleviate those sufferings and to accompany them. And so... That that is the reality of of the work that is uh, caring for people at the end of life or nearing the end yeah. of life. Yeah. So I, I don't want to minimize. I don't want to minimize pain. I don't want to minimize suffering. It's it exists. It's real. Well, what you just said, I think, is a, a great segue. And in, in, in the interest of time, we'll, we'll we'll jump down to our last question. And you've kind of already answered this question, but I'm going to give maybe a little bit more overall. Nicole, how can palliative care and, and maybe even the, the medical profession as a whole best respond to and, and combat this cultural trend towards assisted suicide? I think you've already started answering that with your with your response to my previous question, but what other ways um, can palliative care respond to this cultural trend? I think it's through humility. I think it's through seeing our role as also in the in the light of our humanity um it is not in my control to control life and death and so i think with humility and with uh resisting a temptation that's out there that that i can eliminate a person's suffering totally is is the beginning step um the the, the risk of palliative medicine is that it can become totalizing that there could be a notion of that we can kind of master all of these domains of suffering, including the existential. And that's the risk of my own field. And I say that as a person who loves palliative medicine, but the risk of it is to, to accept a, a, a cultural notion that there can be a, that can be totalizing that we can master or even define what spiritual well-being should be at the end of life or emotional or psychological and so I think, I think the approach, the appropriate approach of, of my colleagues and, and those of us in this field is, 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 is to uh, proceed with, with humility, with understanding, the, uh, at least having an appreciation for the limits of medicine, and that we have many important, important tools that we are training and always refining our expertise and to be able to use for the good and service of our fellow brothers and sisters. But we are not the masters of life and death itself. And so I think that's where the real change begins um, in terms of how palliative medicine can best respond is to check our own understanding of who we are and what power we have or don't have. And to be honest about that and to, to bring that forward in conversation and in training and and in um, in a reality check type of way of 
to not diminish the good that we can do, but to not overstep our bounds and assume a power that we ought not be assuming. Really interesting. What would you, if you had an opportunity, and you do, to speak to to patients and even designated decision makers as well, so so patients, proxies, or, or surrogates, what would you want these people to, to keep in mind on the topics that we're talking about today when they're making end-of-life treatment decisions, either for themselves or for their loved ones? You know, I, thank you, I, I, I invite patients I'm working with um, to reflect upon their values, what, what matters most to them, the, the conversations that they may find important at this time in their life. What are the things and the people that they wish to be um, focusing on, um, spending their time on or with? I, I really feel like that's broad, like broadly answering that question. Um, I, I allow people, I invite people to know that the medications that I might recommend or that we might discuss are not obligatory for them to accept, that I'm trying to present to them tools that I think might help them to reach, you know, greater comfort or be able to f- have less pain to be able to focus on other things that they want to be focusing on. Um, but I also am very, um, I'm very clear in letting patients know that they're not obligated to accept, you know, pain medication, for example, but, but that I'm, that I have some ideas and thoughts about what they might be able to do to help them, you know, have less pain or whatever symptom it might be. But ultimately, you know, I, I'm, I'm humbled and most, um, really most love about my job is having the opportunity to be with people as they are in many cases coming to the point in their life where the priorities become so clear as people are facing the end of their life or the potential of, you know, having a, you know, worsening serious illness. I find that people really are in a place in general where they are keenly aware of, of what matters to them, who matters to them, who they want to be with, how they want to be spending their time. And sometimes not, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, to um, just making it too generalized, but that's what's really humbling. And if I'm aware and if I'm paying attention uh, to it, it, it's an incredibly refining experience personally, where I sort of have these glimpses of more keenly coming up against my own mortality, which is not depressing, actually, but clarifying. So that's a pretty Broad answer, um, but it's what kind of came to mind as you asked that. Um, you know, it's just such a journey working with patients and walking with them, and 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 there's times in their journeys and trajectories that I'm in the clinic setting now where you know they're it's clear that they want to you know seek further cancer treatment, go for the next chemotherapy, and then you start to see sometimes where they start to shift and start to think, you know, I'm at the point where it's it's maybe not helping as much as I thought it would, and I don't really want to go back to the hospital. And I, I think I'd really like to probably shift the focus here and, and let go of some of these medical interventions now and focus more on being at home. And it, it's it's different for every person. And, and cancer treatment itself is, is changing so much. And it's, you, know, you never can predict exactly what any person's going to experience. But 
I think it's trying to um, honor the person at the center of it and, and let them know that they are valued and seen and, and heard and, um, and that they are not alone. Excellent. Nicole, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Oh, not sure, but um, <laughs> thank you for listening. And you hung in there. And, you know, these are topics that, you know, you get asked on a plane. So what do you do? And I'm like, oh, gosh, you don't really want to know. Um, I love I love that conversation. I got to tell you, I've had some great conversations with know, people on, the, on planes. It's just, <laughs> I just sometimes start talking about these topics and thought, wow, really, really, really went pretty far down that path. But um, no, thank you to those who are listening. And and really, I don't know if I have words of wisdom, but but a gratitude for the time to be with you all. And, and, uh, and thank you for, for, um, for, for hearing this. And, and if you feel called to keep those who are facing these serious illnesses in your prayers and their families, please do and perhaps those who are helping to care for them as well. Um, Absolutely. It, it's so important, um, really, that we really are all in this together. And so that would probably be my last word of wisdom would be thank you. All right, Nicole Sharilla, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics On Air. Thanks, Joe. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications. Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.